couple items I'd share uh, with you beforehand here. Uh, our FAQs, our faithfully asked questions for men and women of all ages, uh, will be meeting together uh, in the chapel this Wednesday if you'd like to attend that. Uh, continue to press in, as been mentioned even in our announcements, into Lakewood's 111, committing to gather in one small group a month, committing to serve once a month, committing to have a spiritual invitation once a month, inviting someone to have a conversation about Jesus into your home, invite them to church. Uh, and one thing I'd offer um, as a way of service opportunity to anyone here, if you find yourself in a season where you don't physically or maybe just by way of time have the availability to serve, uh, would you email me? I would love to receive an email from you and you can join, um, I don't know, maybe Matt's prayer team or something. Um, I have a, a spreadsheet because I actually keep spreadsheets of everything. I have a spreadsheet of prayer requests and I read over this past week that I've uh, noted uh, over a hundred specific answers to prayer. Um, if you would like to pray with me um, and receive an email once a month, I think that'd be a great way to serve the body. Uh, so feel free to reach out to me. So uh, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. I hope many of you have had a good week back into school and fall activities. The transition from summer to fall is a difficult one, so I would encourage you to be faithful. We come this morning to the book of Job in our new series for the fall called The Journey of Suffering. What we will soon find out is that this book documents the suffering of a man, but the story is so much more than that. As in our own suffering, it's not just the suffering we experience and want answers to. We want to know how to operate and live in this world with wisdom while we're on the journey of faith, especially in suffering. The book of Job and really the other, the other wisdom books of the Old Testament, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, they're given for the faithful followers of Christ to accomplish that very thing. To live with wisdom in the life that they've been given. And why exactly do we need wisdom? Why do we need help from wise and godly friends? Why do we go to the wise words and the narratives of Scripture? Why do we ask and pray for wisdom from God, the God of the universe? who knows and sees all things. Well, we need wisdom, and our main point really answers this. We need wisdom because faithful followers of Christ, well, they don't see it all. What is currently out of your optics? What don't you see? Well, I think there's a few things. I'll share a few. I think you don't see. We don't see the true heart, feelings, and thoughts of our kids or loved ones. We don't see the future as it relates to stock market and retirement accounts. We don't see often our own blind spots and flaws that others see so clearly. We don't see the purposes of God in allowing what he does in our life. And we don't see 
how the Vikings could lose on opening Sunday. They have to win today. I don't see it. Really, there's, there's a lot that we don't see, right? This is particularly true as we begin examining the historical narrative of a man named Job. A man who could not see the complexity of spiritual forces around him. So consider with me first the faithfulness of Job uh, in reading Job 1, 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yokes of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Verse 1, verse 1 tells us a lot about our guy. He's from the land of Uz, and many scholars understand him to be a man who lived during the time of Abraham or, or just before. Job is living in the ancient Near East. He's not a Jew. He's a man who's following God. We're also told about his character in these verses. And it's affirmed by God himself throughout the book. And verse 1 says, as we read, Job is, Job is blameless, upright, fears God, and he turns away from evil. He's not just a good dude. In Christian circles, we would say he's a godly man. His character is manifest in his life. He was rich with many animals, many employees in his company and was viewed as the greatest man of faith, character, and wealth of all the people in the East. And perhaps my favorite part, verse 5, we see that he was a good dad. His ten kids liked each other. I mean, they actually liked each other. That's, that's amazing. And I credit the parents for this. The kids would celebrate each other's birthdays with week-long parties. Parents. Your kids want week-long parties. Job, he not only raised a home in a culture that was conducive for family to be close, but he faithfully advocated for his kids as he sacrificed and prayed to God for them. He preemptively asked for God to forgive their sins and to draw their hearts to him. And parents, grandparents, what an example for us today. Job was blessed with his family, his livestock, his household, and his status. The faithfulness of Job, actually, these five verses, actually, might be some of the most important information to the entire book. Many may know the story already, 
deep suffering is about to come his way. And we might struggle to care as much with a bad guy suffering. Well, we'd say, well, of course the bad guy is suffering. He deserves it. What we are forced to consider at the very beginning here is that Job is blameless and upright and fears God. He turns away from evil. It's not the bad guy who suffers here. It's the best man who suffers. The greatest man in the East, it's him who suffers. The faithfulness of Job reminds us, reminds you and I this morning, that righteous living does not guarantee a lack of suffering. The innocent do suffer in this broken world. Something greater must be at work. Life and spiritual and heavenly realities are much more complex than they may seem. There is something at work in which we cannot see. Next scene. Read with me the heavenly court, verses 6 through 12. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, there's a shift here in perspective. We go from an earthly home in the first five verses now to a heavenly one. We go from what Job can see and touch to now what no one can see and touch. We're given as readers a window into a heavenly court. God sits on the throne as the weekly heavenly meeting takes place. And immediately there's a number of questions that come to mind. Questions in which we don't have great answers for. And historically, we've seen much ink spilt over in debate. So who are the sons of God in verse 6? Some of you may have a translation that says the angels or the members of the court. The word in Hebrew is actually sons. So, who are these sons? There's a few options that academic types like to argue for. The least likely option, the least likely option, although it is an option, is that they truly are angels. Some, however, believe that these sons are a common ploy of Old Testament prophets to use sons of God 
as to reference dead and inferior kings of this earth who thought as they lived on this earth, they were gods. And the third option is that these sons are simply the people of God who are reigning in heaven with the Lord. The identity of these sons is not critical, and it's not spoken about by the author. The more pressing question in these verses and about this heavenly court is this. What is Satan doing there? You may have a note in your Bible. Satan is actually a title, not a name. It may be better read, the Satan or the accuser came into the heavenly court. Was this evil one invited to the party? Does he regularly attend these meetings? Why would God allow the accuser in his presence? Again, we don't have answers to these questions. But what we do have is a challenge and an accusation. But perhaps not the accusation that you first think. It seems that the accuser has been navigating the nooks and the crannies of the seen and physical world. And the Lord brings up Job and his character and his faith in verse 8. It could be read as though God is offering Job up on a silver platter. However, that is not the case. In light of the conversation, there is an unspoken question that is not written down in the accuser's explanation of his travels. Has Satan just been walking up and down the earth on a stroll? In the context of the Lord's question and the evil one's response, Satan has been walking this earth looking up and down at the professed faithfulness and lives of God's people. So Satan basically is saying this, I've been looking all around this world you made. Does anyone truly love you? Follow you in your word? <laughs> or... Or will they all just turn and follow their own way and listen to my deceptive words, just as Adam and Eve did? That's the question. So God points not just to a man, but his best man. You're questioning whether you're finding real faith out there as you wander this earth? Let me point you to my best man. Look at Job, the blameless, upright one, the faithful man. And here we see the accusation in verses 9 through 11. Does Job fear God for no reason? It may come to surprise you, but the accusation actually isn't against Job. The accusation is against God. Here's how one writer explained it. The challenge then is a simple one. Satan is saying that none of God's people love him more than they love themselves. Their love for God, their faithfulness to Him is not God-centered, it's self-centered. It's about what they get out of God. Satan is accusing God of running a nasty protection racket instead of what God is claiming it to be. A salvation based on grace, evoking a personal faith that has real integrity. Not only is Job's integrity in question, but so much more God's. If Job should fail, every believer would be deemed a fraud. 
and so would God's promises and his word. The nature of Satan's accusation here is critical to understand. Satan accuses God of not changing people's hearts. They don't really love him. And because God's integrity is being put into question, that is the context that gives light to the Lord's response that we read in verse 12. Look at it again. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. God allows the accuser to harm Job. Why? For his own glory. To demonstrate the nature of his relationship with faithful followers. To prove his integrity. To prove his word. To prove his promises and his work in the hearts of his people is actually true. What Job doesn't see in the heavenly court in which God is called into question. And Job's life is about to be used to defend God's character. Now let me stop for a moment and say that perhaps this is something of a cold and wet blanket to our souls. It's incredibly difficult for our 21st century Western minds to hear that God's first and foremost concern is his own glory. It's difficult to hear that in this world and even in our life, that it's not about us. That's radically different than what you'll hear from the culture. And quite often, let's be honest, that's radically different from how we operate, even as Christians in the church. We wake up and center our lives on us, on me. We alluded to this last week as we considered the mission of the church in Acts. The lives we live aren't ultimately about you and I. They're about him. Our lives are to point to him. As he uses even something like a Lakewood 111, as we gather, as we serve, as we invite, and yes, even as we suffer, all of it God uses for his mysterious purposes. Purposes in which we can't always see. Next scene. The tragic loss. Starting in verse 13. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck the, the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said to him, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people. And they are dead, 
and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The scene shifts yet again. Heavenly courtrooms, spiritual conversations, the scene shifts back to what can be seen. And in an unbelievable series of events, one bomb drops after another. Job has lost his livestock, his household good and employees, his fortune, and his ten children. Each tragic event worse than the last. One happened, and then another, and then another, with no time to process. His mind spinning and reeling. Now, we already read that Job was the best of us. He lived a truly blessed and faithful life. And again, when a bad guy suffers, we dwell on it less. But when it's the best man, and not just a bad day, not just a little suffering and a little inconvenience, but Job has suffered in a way in which no one has, good or evil. The accusation. Satan's accusation and question hangs in the balance. Will Job fold? Will he turn from the Lord? Will God be proved a liar and deemed unworthy to follow when life shifts from blessing to curse? Will the man who prayed for his children's hearts have his own heart strengthened and sustained and kept by God's promises? Is God real? One writer pointed out how easy it would be and how inclined you and I are to play the blame game. Would Job blame the Sabaeans and plot revenge? Would he blame the shepherds who failed to run and protect the flock? Would he rally supports and political policy to get back at the Chaldeans and, and blame them? Would he blame his children for their week-long parties and perhaps having sin in their hearts? Would he blame the builders of the house when the house fell? Or would he blame himself as many of us are prone to do? What we read is simply remarkable. He tore his robe, shaved his head, numb, heavy heart and hurting mind in disbelief. His first instinct was to do the exact opposite of what the accuser predicted. Remember what he said? He will curse you. Take it, God. Take his stuff. He will curse you to his face. But Job falls down and worships. He blessed and praised God. He did not sin, but willfully, willfully put himself under the providence of God. He trusted when his life blew up. This is the question for us as we look at Job's life, my friends. For those of us who are faithful followers of Christ, is the accusation of the evil one true of us? Would our response to suffering, inconvenience, and difficulty in life, would it be blessing 
or cursing towards God? Would our lives affirm the integrity and faithfulness of God in our hearts? Would we deny God and prove the accuser to be right and God to be a liar? Job's response to his life and our responses to the circumstances of our life puts the glory of God on display. Well, may he enable us to worship as Job did. The last scene. I'd like us to look at the repeated accusation. Read with me starting in chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from growing to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, Well, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. We shift again in our story from what is seen and heard and felt in this life now to mysterious unseen realities. We're back in the weekly heavenly meeting. The scene is a repeat. The accuser walking the earth looking for whether God's people are faithful and likely not just attacking Job, but others. God again points to Job. Job is a true follower. Proof of my word and my promises. He's proof, God says, that my work does take place in people's hearts. And God again affirms Job's character. Verse 3, there's none like him, God says. Blameless, upright, turning away from evil. He holds fast to integrity and faith. And you, Satan, incited me against him, even though he's innocent. So we see the goalpost shift. And Satan demands skin for skin. A man can lose his fortune and family, but if you touch him, 
If you afflict him, if you allow him to wake up every morning hurting, he will not bless you in worship. Rather, he'll curse you. And God's glory, God's integrity, and God's promises are challenged yet again. And God, again, seemingly does something that we struggle with. He divinely moves to prove his glory. He allows Satan to act. And here we have the great contrast between God and Satan. God blesses, Satan attacks. God gives, Satan takes. God sits on the throne. Satan has to come to him in a meeting. God is fully in control. Satan has to get permission. Satan leaves in our text the heavenly courtroom. And ironically, he leaves the rest of the story. He's not mentioned in the rest of the book. Satan leaves because he's failed. And as we read, the accuser, he did what he does. He attacked. He aimed to hurt Job, not just physically, but to redirect him spiritually. His aim was not just to attack Job, but to attack the glory of God. Surely Job will curse and prove the Lord to be a liar. Well, the, the response? Job's wife falls into the response that many of us do. That many of us do when we suffer or we see others suffering. She essentially says, let's just give up. This faith thing isn't working out right now because the circumstances of my life haven't gone the way I thought they would. <laughs> let's just give up. Job, in contrast, somehow, enabled by the Spirit of God, speaks to the providence of God. God gives and takes away. Job doesn't sin with his lips, although we will find out soon enough in the coming chapters. He had some doubts in his mind. For no outward reason Job can see or understand, he's lost everything, he's hurting, and he's even been encouraged to give up. Here's the question that you and I are left with this morning as we consider this story. Where is Job's defender and advocate? Job's experience and this question are designed to point us to, to the, the fulfillment of Job's suffering in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's one helpful way to understand it. Quote, God's purpose is to settle this matter by actions rather than legal argument. But there is another reality here. Satan's case and accusation is not ultimately thrown out of court until Jesus has defeated him in person as a man. It is after he has come in the flesh and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit as the rightful king that the case is settled. God has chosen to become a man in order to suffer, including skin for sin, skin and death itself, to redeem God's people and to raise up the children of God. It has always been God's plan to settle the question by actions rather than argument. So now, thousands of years later, Jesus, our advocate and defender, need not argue the case. The case is settled. 
Now, when the people of God are attacked, Jesus simply has to rise to his feet. And all of heaven, all in the heavenly meaning, they know that he will not deny any that come to him. That Jesus will receive them as his own, as his own, and judgment and justice are to be done. For us then today, the matter is settled at the throne of God, and that is the location in which we have assurance. So Job waited, wondering if an advocate, a defender, if a savior would come. But now, as new covenant believers, we look back to the better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, the God-man Jesus who died and rose again for our sins, the Savior who cares so much for our suffering that he came and suffered in our place. He did this to secure for us a place in heaven, yes, but he also did this and he came to secure our hearts when the world shakes, and when we're in pain on the journey of suffering, just as Job was. That's why Christ came. That's why the gospel is precious. The true sufferer came. We don't sit and wait and wonder if an advocate and defender will arise. He's arisen. He's come to meet us on our journey. And like Job, Faithful followers of Christ, we don't see it all. We don't see the complexity of this world. We don't see spiritual forces. And we don't see heavenly court meetings. But by God's grace, we see Christ and his gospel. We see his work on our behalf. And may he help us to look and to cling to him. May he enlarge our hearts to live wisely and faithfully this week, even when suffering comes. Would you pray with me? Father, our big ask in prayer is this, that as we leave this building and tomorrow as we live the lives you've given us, we pray that we would worship you in the midst of it. You have called us to lift high the name of Jesus, whether we eat or drink, whether we watch a football game this afternoon or we suffer, we do all to the glory of God. Lord, help us to live lives that are for your glory. We confess that it's difficult to grasp this concept that you move in divine ways for your glory, and that you aim for us to do the same. So our prayer is that we would live for your glory and that we would know great joy in doing so. And Lord, like Job, when we sit in pain and agony with unanswered questions, would we remember that we're in a better position than Job? The greater Job has come. We have had someone come and suffer in our place. Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.